Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Human beings have been practicing birth control for thousands of years, and the history of contraception is actually quite fascinating, but also a little scary. Just consider that in the 1800s, the United States Congress formally declared birth control to be immoral and made it a crime to send condoms, diaphragms, or other contraceptives through the mail. Many states went further and banned the sale and possession of contraceptive devices, which actually meant that when the first birth control pill hit the market, it couldn't even be advertised as a contraceptive. So in a clever marketing ploy, it was sold as a treatment for menstrual disorders, and it carried a warning label that pregnancy prevention was a potential side effect. That's one of the rare cases where people started lining up for a drug because they wanted to experience the side effect. People today take for granted how many different options there are for birth control, how effective they are, and how easy they are to access. But we can still do better. Scientists are hard at work trying to develop contraceptive methods that will be safer, more reliable, and more accessible. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We'll be exploring the future of contraception. We're going to discuss some of the new methods in the pipeline, from contraceptive microchips to devices that work to simultaneously prevent pregnancy and STIs. We're also going to discuss why we don't yet have a birth control pill equivalent for men, and whether we're ever likely to get one. We'll also bust some common birth control myths and talk about how to choose the contraceptive that's right for you. My guest is Dr. Jennifer Lincoln, a board-certified OB-GYN and author of the book, Let's Talk About Down There, and OB-GYN answers all your burning questions without making you feel embarrassed for asking. This is going to be a fascinating conversation that you won't want to miss, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Before we dive in, get off the couch and back into the bedroom. Blue Chew can give you the confidence you need. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis in chewable tablets at a fraction of the cost. Simply sign up at bluechew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once approved, you'll receive your prescription in days, discreetly shipped direct to your door. No doctor's visit and no pharmacy waiting line. As I've said on this show many times before, there's nothing sexier than confidence, and Blue Chew can help give you confidence where it counts. So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. As a special deal for listeners, you can try Blue Chew free when you use promo code PSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com, promo code PSYCH, to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information, and thanks to Blue Chew for sponsoring this podcast. Hi, Jennifer, and welcome back to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me back. Well, I am excited to continue our conversation. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the future of birth control. Now, contraception is something that has evolved in various ways over the years. And there are now dozens of different options out there, from fertility awareness methods to condoms to pills, patches, and IUDs. And some of these are extraordinarily effective, which might lead some people to think that we've kind of reached the limit of what we can do. But changes are on the horizon. So let's talk first about where you see birth control headed in the future for women. How are the options that are available likely to change in the years ahead? I would say my biggest hope for, you know, in the years coming would be even at the birth control we have right now, that how people get it changes. 
the American College of OBGYN totally supports over-the-counter access to birth control. And like, I am on that train and I will go on that ride with you because the fact that we make it so hard for people to get contraception in this country, it is, it's crazy. It's mind boggling. You know, some doctors will require that you come in and get a pelvic exam, which we know that you don't need and you shouldn't be holding it hostage. Some insurance companies won't pay for a whole year at a time, or if they do, they won't pay for that last month if somebody's using it continuously. And so they've gone through a pack of their pills or, you know, their ring more quickly. Not all insurance companies will cover birth control, claiming religious reasons, not understanding that many people use birth control for things not even related to birth control, like, you know, avoiding hemorrhaging every month and needing a blood transfusion or becoming suicidal because of premenstrual dysphoric disorder or preventing uterine cancer, which to me, I feel like God would be pretty cool with. But anyway, so I think the accessibility that it would be over the counter, we're getting there, you know, we're getting pharmacists prescribed birth control. And I think 19 states, we've got mail order birth control for various forms, not just the pill, which is very safe, but I would love to see that access be improved for sure. And I would love to see more options for things that are hormonal, but are more long acting. And, you know, we're getting there. We've got the vaginal ring that I use the same ring for an entire year. So that's great in terms of access that somebody only has to get their hands on that ring once, and then they can use it the whole year. We're seeing IUDs and uh, the next one on that, you know, slowly we're, we're getting them FDA approved for a bit longer as we see that they, they do work longer, which I think is wonderful. And I think the topic everybody wants to talk about, which I think is where I really want to see some improvement is in male birth control because it takes two to tango yet, except for condoms, really, we have to, you know, we, the people who, who don't want to get pregnant, we have to be the ones who have to drive the bus on that. And it's, it's a little annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I definitely want to talk about male birth control and, you know, sort of what's on the horizon there uh, in a little bit, but let's talk a little bit more about methods for women and and how specifically some of the methods might be changing. So I'm curious for your thoughts on the new contraceptive implants. You know, that's sort of a newer technology where there's sort of this steady stream of hormones that are delivered and this implant is placed usually in the upper arm. There's also microchips and these other sorts of things. So do you think that birth control is going to become more of this kind of high-tech thing in the future? Yeah, I am sure that it will. And I think that people, we need to remember that we've only really been using birth control since the 60s. So it's still a relatively new class of medication. But it is one of the best studies because we've been studying it for a while. And with all the different kinds out there, we keep getting better and better. I would love to see, you know, it, it can be hard. A lot of birth control can be trial and error. You, know, you try this pill. Oh, that didn't work. Let me try a different progesterone component or a different estrogen component. And definitely we have ways that we can guide, you know, our thoughts into what we're picking. We're not just making this up as we go along, but it would be really cool to see as much money and funding going into, you know, directly targeting specific types of hormones and components in people as it is for other sorts of, you know, technologies like chemotherapy and other, you know, gene kind of treatments. And not to say that I think that we should be spending less money in treating cancer and more in birth control. But I just think historically, feminine health, women's health, reproductive health, we just don't care as much. It doesn't get as much funding. Um, the next one on, that's the arm implant. And I, that's a really cool form of birth control. Um, and it's one of those ones that people either love or they hate it. And really, it's because the bleeding side effects are the thing that really can really annoy people. And so like you said, it goes under the arm. It's good for three years. Although 
we are seeing data that it can last up to five years, but currently it's not FDA approved in the U.S. past three years. And it's this little matchstick sized device and it releases a little bit of progesterone every day. Um, and it's awesome because you don't have to do anything. And for people who don't like the idea of something in their uterus or the IUD insertion procedure, it's a really quick, easy insertion. We can numb up the skin and only about 5% of people rate the insertion as painful. But the spotting and the bleeding, the irregular bleeding that some people get with it, and it's over the lifetime of the next one on, it's not like with IUDs where it tends to get better after insertion. That can be a reason that, that people take it out. So um, and it, you know, it can be annoying for somebody who's like, well, I had this put in my arm and now I'm going back six months later and getting it taken out. It just feels invasive. And so some people don't want to try it. Um, I love the idea of like microchip or like testing somebody's hormonal profile and being able to target their birth control there. And in fact, I actually had a company reach out to me just last week about this. And I just, I turned it down because I felt like I, I just wasn't, I wasn't sure on the data yet. I didn't feel like we're there yet, but I think it's really cool. And I would love to see more, you know, going in this direction, like, you know, what's your ratio of estrogen to progesterone, but we have to have the data first. I, I definitely see companies out there. And unfortunately, a lot of them are really selling garbage, but they're selling these supplements like do saliva testing and, and we can balance your estrogen dominance, which saliva testing is useless in hormones. And so I really want to make sure however we do this, that it's done in an appropriate evidence-based way. And it's all about getting the data first, making sure it works, especially for women who have, um, you know, we don't always have the best history when it comes to hormones and birth control and sterilizations and those sorts of things. So we have to make sure it's accurate and it's equitable before we jump on to new forms of things. Yeah, that is fascinating what you brought up about one of the future directions being sort of more customizable birth control for you based on your own hormone levels. Because for a lot of the history of birth control, it's kind of been a one-size-fits-all approach. But, you know, everybody's a little different in terms of their hormones and maybe what's going to work best for them and their body and in terms of managing the side effects. And so having that customization could actually be great in the future in terms of reducing some of those side effects, making sure it works optimally for you and your body. So we will be keeping our eyes out for that. Yeah. And there's actually studies going on right where I, you know, where I did my residency looking at how things are different in people who weigh different, different weight, different BMIs, because we know that that plays a role, especially in things like plan B. It's not as effective over a certain BMI, even though BMI is a terrible measurement tool. We really need to look at, you know, percentage of body fat really. Um, but that, you know, again, like maybe there's a different amount that you you take based on your, you know, your weight or your body fat percentage. And I would just love to see it be a bit more tailored in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Now in discussions about the future of birth control, something that always comes up is when are we going to have the equivalent of a birth control pill for men? Now, before we discuss what the future of male contraception might look like, let me step back and ask you why most research to date on birth control has focused on women. So in general, why hasn't there been much research or development yet on birth control for men? Yeah, that is such a great topic. And I will, for your listeners, I will say I always am very transparent when I feel like I'm an expert in something and I'm not. And I will say, I don't feel like I'm a complete expert in this. Um, but I do know that there are people who are actively researching this, but I can give you the broad overview. And really what it comes down to is that it can be a lot easier to block a once a month event than an ongoing continuous thing, which, you know, your body is making sperm like every second and not just one, but like, millions and millions. So it's a lot easier to block one discrete event as opposed to a continuous process. 
The other thing too, and while I am all there, I'm yes, male birth control, we need, it needs to be, it takes two to tango. Let's all, you know, let's all do our part. We do need to step back and realize that there is a benefit to me taking birth control because if I get pregnant, I expose myself to the risks of pregnancy and pregnancy and birth is for most people, the most dangerous times in their lives. And yes, pregnancy is natural and beautiful, but in reality, pregnancy, it, it's the, one of the riskiest things you'll do. So when I take a medicine, they are weighing the risks and the side effects and the benefits of that compared to the alternative, which could be pregnancy. Now for a guy, somebody who doesn't have a uterus, it's a very different comparison. So the bar is much higher. Um, they will tolerate a lot less and not they, the guys, like I'm not making fun of guys here, but um, scientifically we have to say, you know, is it acceptable that they're going to have a 20% chance of nausea and vomiting? That's very different when you're comparing it to somebody who could potentially get pregnant. And I know it seems not fair, but I actually think that's very fair because if we are going to expose an entire population to a treatment, we have to be very clear about the risks and the benefits. And for those people who say, well, I, you know, it should still be out there because I would take that risk. I hear you. And we have to be very, we have to make sure that what we're making is safe. So there's a lot going into it. <laughs> <laughs> and I also just think the funding, like, you know, we've just, we, like, we've just always thought like, okay, women are going to get pregnant. They take the birth control. Like we're only just really more and more regular conversation, I think, starting to think about, hey, what about the guys? Like, it's also, remember like when the HPV vaccine came out and it was just mm -hmm. for girls? These are scientists. Like, hello, like, how do you think the girls get the HPV? Why are you just focusing <laughs> on them? Like, HPV causes cancer of the throat and penis too. Like, you know, so, you know, every day is better than the day before. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, don't get me started on how hard it was for me to get the HPV vaccine a few years ago um, before uh, the FDA yeah. guidelines all changed. You know, as a guy who was over the age of 25, I called a whole bunch of different places and no one would give me the vaccine um, because right. I just wasn't like you're in trying to score heroin, you know, yeah. like you're trying to get something ridiculous. Like, ooh, he wants the HPV vaccine. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it was a journey. Eventually I got it. Um, and I'm glad now that the guidance has changed and it's more widely available for people of all genders and a wider age range. Um, so, you know, access has certainly improved, but it was a challenge for me quite a while ago. Yeah. You know, in terms of the future of male birth control, you know, currently you have condoms and you have vasectomies. Those are pretty much the only available options. But scientists are studying some new possibilities. And in your book, you mention a couple of them. So what are some of the methods that are currently being tested? And do you think any of them will ever actually make it to market? Because I've been hearing about some of these things for years, like more than a I decade. I know. They keep saying, it's coming. It's coming. Which <laughs> is kind of funny what we're talking about. But anyway, yeah. I do think we'll get there. I do. And so some things they're testing are, you know, pill, um, like a subdermal implants. Um, one that I think is cool is an injection into the vas deferens, like a temporary blocker, and then you can dissolve it. Um, I think that's pretty cool. Um, do I think it might be a hard sell for, you know, some guys to go in and have a needle placed in their scrotum potentially, but I also do think that there are a lot of guys out there who do not feel comfortable having to rely on their partner, especially if you're not in a committed relationship. So I don't think it's fair to assume that, you know, no guys will be interested in this. Um, 
And I'm glad that you brought up vasectomy because I don't know if you have seen this, but there is a lot of misunderstanding about what a vasectomy is and isn't, especially on TikTok now. Like whenever I make anything about birth control, people will say, well, guys should just get a vasectomy till they're ready to have kids. And it's, that's not how it works. It's not like getting an IUD and then you have it removed when you're ready to have a kid. They should be treated as permanent. And yes, sometimes they can be reversed. But what I tell people is that the goal of a good vasectomy is one that is not reversed easily. Like you don't want it. Like when I, you know, remove a part of somebody's tube, I don't want to remove a tiny part and be like, well, in case they want to hook it back later. Like that's not the goal. Um, so it's not always super easy and it's often not covered by insurance. So it, it needs to be, uh, people need to think of it as, as a permanent thing, um, which is so strange to me. This is why I'm on social media to see like, what, what are people saying? And the idea that it's not permanent, it's reversible is really not true. So I know they are doing, um, I feel like UCSF is doing a lot of research, the family planning division there. Um, and I think that we, we will continue to see more, especially as we are getting more vocal in this space. And we're like, Hey, why haven't, yeah, we need more funding for women's health too, but we also need to think a bit more about pregnancy, just like with HPV, like, like let's figure out where that sperm comes from. Um, so I do, I do think we will get there. Will we have the same conversation in 10 years? Possibly, but it typically does take a long time for drugs to come to market. And I am not in love with big pharma, but it also takes a lot of money to bring a drug to market. And it takes a lot of time, typically, unless we're in the middle of a pandemic and we've you know, got billions of dollars thrown at us, like with vaccine development, which is appropriate. Um, so it's not abnormal for it to take decades. Um, and there can be a lot of starts and stops along the way. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up big pharma and the costs associated with developing these drugs, because that has been another part of the story in terms of why we don't have a male equivalent of the birth control. And it's because there hasn't historically been the demand among men for something like that. And so if there's not money in it, then the pharmaceutical companies don't invest in developing that. So, exactly. you know, it's also why a lot of pharmaceutical companies have stopped making antibiotics. It's because there's not money in it. It's not because people don't need antibiotics, but in terms of investing in developing and creating new antibiotics, there just hasn't been the profit. Uh, available. And so, you know, that's profit is something that factors in a lot in terms of, you know, sort of how drugs and, and things like this are developed. But I'm glad you mentioned a lot of the different things that are out there that are under development. So I've read about the, you know, hormone pills that are designed to temporarily lower sperm production. So to make it that you're producing less of it. I've also read about the hormone gels that you apply to the skin that that sort of have a kind of similar effect on sperm production. And then there's also that gel you mentioned that is injected into the vas deferens, which is the sperm carrying tube. And so it's this temporary thing. There's been a fair amount of research I've seen on it in terms of clinical trials. And I keep hearing, you know, it's going to be in the next three to five years or whatever, but it just keeps getting pushed back and back. So. I know, they just keep saying that over and over. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's, you know, we just all should be making insulin because that's the most profitable medication out there, which is disgusting. But um, yeah, and I think you brought up like it's, these medicines have been shown to lower the sperm count. That's cool. But like I tell, you know, it just takes one, like if you yeah. want it to work or you want, you know, and again, not all birth control is hundred percent like diaphragms and those sorts of things. We, we are very okay with saying, Hey, this only works 80% of the time. So maybe it's about you know, not calling it a birth control, but like a sperm count reducer. I don't know, something like that to, to get us there. But it'll be, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. 
It absolutely will be. And in terms of that gel that's injected, you know, historically what I've heard people say is, well, guys aren't going to want to get, you know, this needle in their penis. But, you know, on previous podcasts, I've talked about how a lot of guys are going out and getting scrotox. Like they're literally getting Botox injected into their balls. And so if they're willing to do that, then why not, you know, this, this vast deference blocker? (laughs) I've never heard of that. And I cannot wait. Oh, no, actually, I don't want to Google it. But I need to learn more about this. I'm going to go. I get Botox in my forehead because the pandemic has made me looking very angry. And I'm totally fine with that. And I'm going to ask my injector if she's done any scrotox. (laughs) (laughs) You know, increasingly, people are kind of getting full body Botox. You know, they're getting it, you know, We just don't want to feel anything anymore. We just want to look completely... (laughs) (laughs) I'm done. I'm done feeling and looking emotional. (laughs) Oh, I cannot wait to talk to my husband about that tonight. Thank you for for that (laughs) nugget of information. (laughs) So one other thing I want to ask your thoughts on in terms of the future of contraception is, you know, something I've increasingly heard about is that in the future, we're going to have a two-in-one approach where you're going to get both birth control and STI protection at the same time. So for example, a ring that's inserted in the vagina that releases hormones to prevent pregnancy while also, say, simultaneously releasing drugs that prevent HIV infection. So what do you think about this approach? And do you think that's likely to be part of the way that contraception works in the future where you also have this added STI protection benefit? Yeah, I think that would be amazing. And I have to be honest, I think that we would potentially already have it if we were as concerned about HIV in the United States as we would as we still are in other countries like in you know Africa where the rates continue to still be really high and it's because they don't have the funds and, and the money and the education um, funding that we do here. Um, so I think we probably could it would already be here if we cared, but that's how inequity in medicine works. I mean, look at the vaccine rollout. Um, so I think it would be great. And I think that, um, that in other countries, especially in more developing countries, it's critical because if you can get something that's a once a year ring, like the Anovera ring that I mentioned earlier, the birth control ring, and all you have to do is be able to make contact with somebody one time and say, this is good for an entire year. And you can use it for pre-exposure prophylaxis or, you know, blocking other, you know, things as well, like gonorrhea, chlamydia, you know, other infections, and also give you control over your fertility. Like, oh my God, that would be so amazing. And it makes sense because it's kind of the same, you know, the vaginal mucosa, the reason we're able to use these medications, it's so well vascularized and you are able to absorb things through it. So it's a great place to put something. It's discreet. Nobody knows about it. You don't feel it. It goes with you wherever you go. You don't have to worry about leaving your pills. Um, it doesn't require refrigeration. So yeah, it would be it would be amazing. Um, I think that would that is a really exciting thing that we could see on the horizon. Yeah, and with the ease of use, you know, that can increase adherence rates, right? So that people are going to take the human error out of the equation to some degree. So I think there's still lots of room for development in contraception. Oh, yeah. Now, we have more to discuss, including common birth control myths and how to choose the right contraceptive for you. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. The Modern Sex Therapy Institutes provides continuing education, certifications, and a PhD in sexology to mental health and medical professionals across the globe. MSTI is a one-stop shop for ASECT sex therapy certification requirements, including education, sexual attitude reassessment, and supervision. 
MSTI offers flexible payment plans and learning options. Attend from anywhere in the world and learn from experts on sex and relationships. For more information on their programs and offerings, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Want to last longer in bed? Our friends at Permesin can help. Check out their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. You can customize it for your own body and desensitize only the areas you want. Use it alone or in combination with other techniques for faster, more reliable results. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews and is physician-recommended. Permescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet shipping to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place an order at permescent.com, where you'll also find an extensive selection of lubricants, supplements, condoms, and more. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. So we've been talking about the future of birth control, but let's step back to the present and talk about some common questions and misconceptions about contraception. So something I've heard a lot of people say is that if my partner pulls out before ejaculation, I can't get pregnant. So the pullout method or pull and pray technique is <laughs> actually one of the most commonly used forms of birth control. But as a physician, what do you want people to know about this? How reliable is the pullout method in terms of preventing pregnancy? I call it the pull-out method or the pull and fray or the preparing for pregnancy and parenthood method because, yeah, it sucks. Um, and it's not great. <laughs> and that's because you have to rely on somebody else entirely and the fact that they have that control. And we all know that pre-cum or pre-ejaculate has sperm in it, not as much as when somebody ejaculates, but it only takes one. That's the theme here. Um, so it's not great. So when I counsel patients about their birth control methods and there's a range and it's about what the level of acceptable risk is for you and what you're willing to tolerate. For some people, they're like, you know, I don't want to get pregnant, but I'm okay if I do. So we're going to use the pull-out method. And I'm like, okay, cool. Just understand, you know, it's not that great. And be sure to be taking a prenatal vitamin. Sometimes when I say that, people they go, oh my God, you really think I'm going to get pregnant? I'm like, I do. And we want to prevent birth defects. So let's just, you know, think ahead. But if you change your mind, that's cool too. And we can talk about it. <laughs> Yeah. In terms of the actual rates, uh, the statistics I've seen find that over the course of a year, a woman who is using the withdrawal method as her primary method of birth control, between one in five and one in four of these women are going to get pregnant in that one year period, right? So that's just a good indicator of sort of what the level of risk is in terms of, say, an unintended pregnancy. Now, you can amplify the effectiveness of the withdrawal method if you combine it with other techniques, like if you're tracking your ovulatory cycle and these other sorts of things, you know, there are other things you can do, but just using that alone is not super effective. Now, something else I hear a lot about is that, you know, condoms are 98% effective at preventing pregnancy. And while that's technically true, that's only when condoms are used perfectly. So with typical use, which accounts for human error, the rate actually drops to 82%, which isn't that much different from the effectiveness rate of the pullout method. And whenever I say this, people are super surprised because they're under the impression that condoms are way more effective. And in theory, they are. It's just that people make a lot of mistakes. So what are the most common condom use mistakes people make and what do they need to know to increase their effectiveness? Yeah, I love that you're explaining like it is actually kind of the same because we do. We think condoms are, you know, 98% and not to bash condoms like the, they're fantastic when it comes to STI protection, but when it comes to birth control alone, 
yeah, you have to be perfect. And most people, when I say that, they're like, well, I am, you know, I always use a condom and I'm like, okay, hold on sister. Do you make sure that it's never been in a car, hot car? It's in the you know back pocket. Do you check the expiration date every time? Do you check it for holes to, or, you know, that the package hasn't opened, um, before you use it to make sure that there's no holes or anything like that. Do you make sure that the condom is on before the penis is it any chance to get near the wall or the vagina? Do you make sure that your partner with, you know, has holds it at the base and takes it off far away? Do you use a new one every single time? And a lot of people, and you know, and then it can slip and it can break and all that stuff. So the vast majority of people are not perfect and that's okay. I'm not perfect either. It's not to make fun of people that they can't use a condom correctly, but they, there's a lot of user error and it's just inherent to what it is. So Yes, please use a condom as opposed to nothing. But also, if you really want to make sure you don't get pregnant, that's not the best method. And I love the CDC image that really puts it into kind of that table, you know, where you can really see and it says these methods, you know, whatever it is, 20 out of 100 will get pregnant a year versus these, it's less than one in 100. And then you can be like, how dedicated am I to not getting pregnant? Where do I fall? Like, how disruptive would a mistimed pregnancy be? And then kind of see which methods you want. Um, so yeah, condoms are cool, but they are, they do, they require a lot of adherence to like perfection, (laughs) you know, and if you look at some of the other studies on common condom use mistakes, sometimes people put it on after they start having sex or they take it off before sex is over. And it's like, you know, (laughs) there are lots of basic things here that we need to change if you want to increase the effectiveness of condoms. And again, it's not to say that people are dumb or that they don't realize these things. It's just also that in heightened states of arousal, sometimes when that's combined with alcohol and other things, we don't always follow the guidance accordingly and make the sort of the best sexual health decisions in those situations. Totally, yeah. I mean, we've all done it. Again, this is another example of a doctor. Like, yeah, we've all done it and been like, well, I'm sure that one time it was fine and it just takes one. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and that's where, you know, combining condoms with other contraceptives can be useful. So, you know, if you combine condoms with birth control pills, then you get the STI protection aspect and then also a highly effective contraceptive. You know, even with typical use, birth control pills are going to be 98, 99% effective, right? So the risk of pregnancy is much, much, much lower when you're using the hormonal methods. But One other question um, that I often receive about birth control pills is whether the pill needs to be taken at the same exact time every day in order to be effective. And do you need to take a break from the pill occasionally uh, to let your body reset? So what's your answer to those questions? Does the pill have to be taken at the same exact time to be effective? And do you need to go off it occasionally? No, great questions. And I actually have quite a few YouTube videos on these topics because there's so much birth control misinformation out there. And it causes so much unnecessary anxiety and I hate to see it. So the great news is no, your birth control pill does not need to be taken the same time every day. It's not like a, you know, a ticking bomb that like, as soon as you get past this hour, like, you know, it's an ovary free for all and eggs are getting shot out everywhere. With the progesterone only pills, there's definitely less wiggle room. Um, And that's, you know, three hours. It should be taken in the same three hour time span. But with the combination pill, estrogen and progesterone, it just needs to be taken in the same 24 hour time period. So if you normally take it in the morning, it's ideal to keep taking it in the morning, but it's still, it doesn't count as a missed pill until you've gone past a full 24 hours. And what that can also be helpful when people like want to change up their time period as well. Like if they're traveling or changing time zones or something like that. Um, so yeah, it's not as um, rigid, which is nice. 
And then do you need a birth control break? Absolutely not. And there's so much misinformation about birth control and fertility. And I just want people to know that birth control does not cause infertility only when you're using it, which is the goal. And then once you stop using it, your fertility goes right back to baseline. The only difference is the depot shot that can take up to a year. But at one year, when they've studied people who've come off of all kinds of birth control, compared them to people who never used birth control, the chance of getting pregnant, the ability to get pregnant was exactly the same. So no long-term effects. And it has nothing to do with how long you've been on the pill or how long you've been on the depot shot, um, which is, and you know, the idea that people say you need to take a break to like cleanse out the hormones or let your body have its natural cycle. You don't, you're more than welcome to, but just understand that you're at the risk of pregnancy during those times. So it's not necessary. Um, so much misinformation about infertility and birth control out there. Um, it's, it's sad. Which is why the work you do is so important. Now, (laughs) I have just one more question for you. So there are dozens of different birth control options that are out there. And each one has different benefits and different potential risks. So how do you know which one is right for you? What, What is your advice in terms of choosing the right contraceptive? Yeah. So we actually, we put up a dartboard and we just throw a dart. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Sometimes I think that's what people think we do is you're just like, well, whatever drug rep, drop these off. And it's, it's not like that. Um, what I, my goal is, you know, if we're talking about combination pills here, um, I always stick with monophasic. So it's the same dose every day. And the reason I do that is because there's other formulations where the dose changes every week. And not that that's a bad thing, but for people who might want to use it continuously, I like to give them that option of just the same dose so they can, they can do that. And then I tend to start with, I, I go, what's covered by your insurance? Because it can range drastically. And I'm a big believer in using generics. It's the exact same thing. Although some people do notice a bit of a difference and I'm not saying that's not real, but I tend to go with whatever's covered. And sometimes we might tailor what hormone component based on family history or their own history. So for example, there is a, you know, it's not common, but there can be some hair loss associated with birth control use. And it's, this is more important to people who've had this history before. And so we can then, um, you know, if we know that we can try to get them a birth control pill that doesn't have a certain kind of what we call an androgenic versus less androgenic hormone. So we can kind of tailor that. We can also see, you know, what's their desire to have a continuous pill because there are some that come like that. And again, with insurance, it's easier to, to do those as opposed to a generic where they might have, they might run out sooner. Um, and then really, I mean, the vast majority of people do fine with the first one that we give them, but then if they have issues, let's say breakthrough bleeding, we might think, okay, they might need a little higher dose or they might need a different kind of progesterone to stabilize the endometrium. So it's just kind of thinking about those things. Yeah. And so there might be a little bit of trial and error. And it's important to talk to your doctor about potential side effects because there are always other options if the first one doesn't work for you for some reason. So don't be shy about bringing that up with your healthcare provider. So it's all about figuring out, you know, what level of risk is acceptable to you? What works best with your body? How do you manage the potential side effects and so forth? So lots and lots of considerations, but have that conversation with your healthcare provider. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Jennifer. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work, get a copy of your book and follow you on the social media? Yeah. So you can find me just about anywhere misinformation lives and I'm there (laughs) to try to combat it. So Instagram, TikTok, um, and YouTube at Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. 
Um, and I have just a lot of different content about all the stuff we talked about and more on those channels. My website is drjenniferlincoln.com. Um, and you can find different things there as well. And then my book is available wherever booksellers are sold. It's called Let's Talk About Down There. Um, it's like a TikTok in a book form because I believe that we need information very quickly, not drawn out, not a textbook. It's heavily illustrated um, with inclusive language and inclusive illustrations, which is really important to me. Um, support your local booksellers if you can. If not, you know, we've got Amazon and, and all the big ones out there too. Um, but yeah, this was so fun. This is like the highlight of my day talking about this. <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> yes. And TikTok in a book. I like it. I like that approach. Yes. So thanks again for your time. I appreciate having you here. And thanks for listening. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.